Discovering the Prehistory of North America. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Kathleen O'Neill Gear. Thanks for joining us, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here, Bob. Kathleen O'Neill Gear is a former state historian and archaeologist for the U.S. Department of the Interior. She and her husband, archaeologist Michael Gear, are best selling authors who've written over 60 books, novels about the prehistory of North America, what was happening in North America before the Europeans uh, got here. Their latest book is called People of the Canyons, which is published by Forge, a Macmillan imprint. Uh, We're going to talk with Kathleen for a few minutes, and uh, when we take our break in the middle of the podcast, we'll switch over to Michael Gear. but we're starting with with Kathleen. Uh, The book that you have written, or the book we're talking about, People of the Canyons, who are the people of the canyons? We're writing about Fremont culture, Bob, and this is a culture that spanned uh, about from 100 CE to 1600, and they crisscrossed six states, so Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, and Utah, and they were a fascinating culture. The Fremont people, we call them a cultural complex because they seem to be different peoples at different times through history. Hmm. And have you had personal experience with that part of the uh, of the world, you know, specifically in Utah? Yes, yes. I've uh, done a lot of work in Utah and all over the, what we call the Four Corners region, which is uh, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, and uh, uh, Nevada, New Mexico. Okay. How much, so you've written this, this novel about that time, how much do we know about the people of the canyons, and, and how do we know it? We know quite a lot, and the way that this started out, Bob, is that archaeologists had a hard time identifying the Fremont as an actual culture in and of itself. For a long time, we thought they were different cultures, and the reason is that they were incredibly adaptable. And what I mean by that is that through history, if they went through an extended drought and they were living as farmers in pithouse villages, uh, pithouses are partially subterranean chambers that are then roofed with logs and thatch and, and dirt. Um, they kind of look like conical pyramids if you saw them from a distance. Mm-hmm. But if they went through an extended drought and the farming ceased to work, they became hunter-gatherers. So they changed their culture. They moved around. They no longer lived in pit houses. They changed the artifacts that they needed to use to procure food, obviously, since they're no longer farmers. They have to become hunters and produce different kinds of points. So for a long time, archaeologists didn't know who they were. And it was only recently, in the last 20 or 25 years, that we started putting all of the information together and decided, hmm, they're not a variety of different kinds of people. We can tell that they are one people who are just incredibly adaptable. And we know that because there are certain artifacts and their artwork that seems to say pretty much the same. So they're making a gray pottery, a beautiful gray pottery, and they're making a certain kind of a moccasin that we call hawk moccasins that they make from the lower legs of deer or bison or bighorn sheep. And they're also producing specific kinds of clay figurines and basketry. And their rock art is absolutely unique and stunning. 
So mm. across the southwest, you'll have these incredible uh, trapezoidal figures, supernatural figures, I would say, um, who have bison horns, or maybe they're insect antennae, it's hard to, to say, but the, the trapezoidal figures mark them as the Fremont cultural complex. So these were drawn on the rocks of where they live? Yeah, these are actually, uh, they're etched or carved into the rocks or they're painted. Sometimes we get pictographs. So a painting is a pictograph and a carving or an etching is a uh, petroglyph. And I get a sense, I mean, is it like uh, the, what I would call the Pueblos, that may be the wrong one. Uh, you know, they're living like in the, in the cliffs or like in, little, in caves attached to these rocks? Well, sometimes the uh, the Fremont, you're thinking primarily of the Anasazi or ancestral Pueblos when you're talking about cliff dwellings or Pueblos, but sometimes the Fremont did live in the cliffs, and sometimes they did build Pueblos. So that's one of the, the things that make them one of the most enigmatic peoples in the American Southwest, is they change so often. No, but, but, but you're they're saying not- they're... I'm sorry, they're, they're a residents of choice with something else. And you'd explained that before. Maybe if you tell me the second time, I'll remember it. They, they lived in uh, structures that were built uh, along the ground? Yeah, they lived in pit houses primarily. And it's if you, if you were looking from a distance, Bob, at a pit house village, it would kind of look like a giant anthill village. So you've got these humps of, of earth. Uh, that, that make up the village, and usually you're only going to have 10 or maybe 30 houses per village, sometimes even smaller. But they kind of would look like a giant anthill village if you looked at it from a distance. And when you get up on them, they're almost invisible. Mm-hmm. In People of the Canyons, I'm going to your uh, book uh, uh, publishing uh, blurb, if you will, uh, you bring us a tale of trapped magic, a tyrant who wants to wield its power, and a young girl who could be the key to save a people. What do you mean by all that? Well, we're talking about two competing cultures during a period of what appears to be some pretty intense warfare, Bob, and it was probably religious warfare from the images that we find in the rock art and the kivas, which are subterranean ceremonial chambers. But we're talking about two cultures who exist at the same time, so the Fremont Cultural Complex and then the Anasazi, who are the giant uh, Pueblo builders. So they're building giant walled towns for your listeners out there who don't know what a, a Pueblo village is. But it looks like a, a giant walled town um, that's filled with thousands of people and, you know, 500 to 800 rooms. They're multi-storied towns, so some of them are three stories tall, four stories tall, five stories tall. And you end their interaction with the Fremont. So the Fremont are kind of, we, we used to think they were peripheral to the Anasazi War, but I don't think so anymore, Bob. Archaeologists today are saying that they must have been drawn into the warfare. And just as an example, we have a, a site in Utah called Range Creek, where around 1050 A.D., we suddenly see the Fremont move up into this beautiful mountain valley where there's a stream. And they just crowd in there, and all of the radiocarbon dates clustered around 1050 AD as though they're hiding out in there. And at the same time, you're seeing um, it, it, through the latter half of the uh, 11th century and early 12th century, you're seeing rock art from the Fremont, like at McConkie Ranch, which is near Vernal, Utah, 
um, that shows these giant figures wielding uh, spears and shields and carrying severed heads. And the, the, the rock art is so descriptive that you can actually see the blood shooting from neck arteries and running down the panel. So it's painted in red paint. And so I, we think that they were at war at the same time as the Anasazi. Hmm. Are your books more fantasy than historical fiction? Or aren't there kind of big holes uh, that you have to fill in in, in terms of what uh, the people of the canyon were doing when they were alive? There are huge holes. Archaeology is like a black and white photograph that's been torn to shreds and half the pieces are missing. So you piece everything back together as best you can to give you a general picture of what you think might have been happening. But there are huge holes, Bob. And especially when it comes to the Fremont, there are huge holes. So it is, we extrapolate as best we can using the archaeological information and then ethnographic analogy. So we can trace a lot of Fremont culture to later groups and we look at their social structure, their religions, their economic structure, and we try to extrapolate backward in time. Ethnographic analogy is what we call that. And we also use the oral history of the people to fill in a lot of those. And, I, you know, we all play that game where you start a story at one end of the room and you go around and it's a different story by the time you get to the other end of the room. So oral right. history is not a reliable source, but it's an interesting source when you're writing fiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, glad you brought up that you do have other sources of information. You, you said, if I understood correctly, that the people of the canyon, uh, the Fremonts, would have been like other groups that you maybe know more about. And also, to some extent, stories about them came down uh, into what, you know, maybe I would call, perhaps erroneously, history, history, you know, when um, after the Europeans encountered the uh, North American uh, natives, it was, they, you know, they, they would be able to tell stories about the uh, the older peoples. Absolutely, and the Europeans who arrived here wrote down those stories, and that's always a critical resource resource for us is the earliest historical records on what the people believed in the stories they told. And the word Fremont sort of confuses me. I mean, that was an name of a, of, of a European guy, wasn't it? But it's just that his name was given to a lake and these folks lived near the lake. I mean, they didn't really have anything to do with Fremont, did they? Or? Now, here's, here's a, and it is confusing. You're absolutely right. Excuse me. Uh, the first Fremont sites were discovered in the 1920s along the Fremont River, which is in south central Utah. And hence the name for the cultural complex became the Fremont. But it has nothing to do with the great explorer, the Pathfinder, John C. Fremont. Hmm. Okay, that's the uh, the man. But the, the, these, it's just that they lived near that river that was named for him, the yes, people exactly. of the canyons. Can that's you right. talk about your own work in archaeology? Your uh, bio says you were state historian. Were you state historian in more than one state? No, I was a state historian in Wyoming, um, and then I became the uh, tri-state archaeologist. I have interesting degrees. Uh, American Indian history is what my PhD work was in, and it's kind of a crossover between anthropology 
and history, as you can well imagine. Um, so I, I worked in two different jobs. I was state historian in Wyoming, and then I was a tri-state archaeologist for Wyoming, Kansas, and Nebraska. And that was for the federal government? or Yes, it, it was, for the U.S. Department of the Interior. Hmm. Um, and you still live in Wyoming, correct? Yes, we do. We live in Cody, Wyoming. Uh, uh, and how did you come to write novels about the First Nation peoples as opposed to, you know, you're just your regular archaeology work? Yeah, you know, it's a, we've got a couple hundred nonfiction publications, Bob, on history and archaeology and bison conservation, by the way. <laughs> we've raised bison for about 28 years. But we started writing novels because it's, it's actually a natural thing. You're sitting out there in the middle of an excavation, and in one corner of the site, you have uh, the evidence of, of stone tool making. So you have flakes from stone tool making. And in another place, you have children's tools. And you can, in your mind, you can see the fire burning in the center and the people talking. And you can see what they're doing based upon the artifacts that you're surrounded by. And you start telling yourself the story when you're sitting in the excavation unit. So... Writing that down and turning it into a novel was just a very short step for us, and we wanted to tell those stories as accurately as we could as archaeologists. Hmm. Well, it, I haven't known a lot of archaeologists, but I've had have met a few and, and worked with a couple, like doing news stories and and so forth. Uh, I f found that in general, archaeologists are kind of visionary people. They are. You're absolutely right. Yes, they are. They have to be, Bob. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I remember being with an archaeologist once when I worked for the state here in uh, New York, the state of uh, New York University, and th we were doing some sort of construction project, and the archaeologist, uh, she got up to this meeting and said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that we have uncovered the 1700s. And I know in terms of what you write about, that's not that far back. But for us, that was pretty good. Right. Yeah, and, you know, being being a visionary uh, is absolutely essential when you're an archaeologist. Historians have written records, which gives you more of the picture. But when you're an archaeologist, a prehistoric archaeologist in particular, you're trying to take all these little bits of data and piece it together so that you can understand who the human beings were behind the detritus of their lives. And that's that's the most difficult task of any archaeologist, and that's why you must be a visionary. Kathleen O'Neill Gear, former state historian in Wyoming and an archaeologist for the U.S. Department of the Interior. She and her husband, Michael Gear, are uh, authors of over 60 novels about prehistory in North America. Latest book is called People of the Canyons, We'll talk with uh, Michael Gear in uh, just a moment. I do want to mention to you that we have our GoFundMe campaign underway. If you uh, can find your way clear to uh, donating something to us, we really would appreciate it. You can find the link to the GoFundMe page on our main website where you may be listening to this program, and our website is bobcudmore.com. You can also send us a donation in the mail, Make the check out to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horstman Drive 
in Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Joining us now is Michael Gear, husband of Kathleen Gear. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing well, Bob. How are you today? Okay. Uh, he is the co-author of The People of the Canyon and other historical fiction novels about uh, North America's uh, first nations. Um, here in upstate New York, uh, we live in the land of the Mohawk Nation, who were part of the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee. And were, were there different people here before them? Oh, sure. I mean, keep in mind that North America has been inhabited by humans for at least 20,000 years, we're finding out now, uh, maybe even longer. It's a fun time to be an archaeologist because these dates keep being pushed back. But, yeah, no, and the, the Iroquois are fascinating people. We did a, a whole quartet of four novels um, based just on the Iroquois. That started with uh, People of the Longhouse, Broken Land, Don Country and People of the Black Sun, and then uh, dealt with some of the origins of the of the, the Iroquoian peoples when we did People of the Masks, you know, years ago. So we we've, we've got a real familiarity with that part of the country. Masks, M A S K S, and that was taken from uh, you know, the, the Iroquois masks that they. Oh, the mask! Uh, oh, I, oh, yes, yeah, I've, yeah, I've actually seen some yeah. of those. That was became a controversy when the state of New York had possession of the masks and the, uh, for example, the Mohawk nation d really didn't want that. Right. Yeah. So Do, and uh, keep in mind that when we're dealing with North America, Bob, yeah, people just always, Americans had this image that there was nothing here prior to 1492, except for some of these strange Indians who kind of like ran around in the forest and hunted deer. And one of the reasons Kathy and I started writing the People series in particular was to be able to tell the story of our continent's archaeology. Because it's, it's truly the lost, the lost continent, and it's the one that we live on. Uh, most Americans know more about Egypt and the Nile, even Angkor Vat in Cambodia, than they know about the cultural heritage on their own continent. Uh, for example, there you you have one of your novels, or maybe more than one, are about um, is it Alabama, where there were these uh, these large settlements uh, and people built mounds and so forth. Well, yeah, call it a city. That you're speaking particularly in that case of people of the Weeping Eye and uh, people of the Thunder, and that's all about the based on the Moundville complex just south of, of Tuscaloosa. And yeah, there's, there's about uh, 10 20,000 people living in that valley along the Black Warrior River, and they're just part of a series of uh, small kingdoms, chieftainships, kingdoms, uh, all through the American Southeast. How did you and Kathleen meet? Well, her uh, boss brought her to an archaeological conference in Laramie, and um, her, her boss at the time was the Wyoming State Archaeologist, and she just showed up at the meeting, and, and God bless Ray, uh, he said, no, Kathy, let's go out and have, have lunch with Mike. And it was one of those conversations where at the time she was working as a state historian, and so she and I got into it about the differences between archaeology and history, 
and it was love at first sight, even if she stepped on my hat in the process. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good question. What is the difference between archaeology and history? Well, the, the thing about history is, is you have the written record, and that gives you at, at least the official version of the myth, because, you know, the victors always write the stories. And when you're dealing especially with prehistoric archaeology, we might have clues from the descendants of the people, but you're essentially having to go in and through excavation and mapping and the study of the actual artifacts themselves, where they came from, where they went to, how they were manufactured, uh, reconstructions from what you get out of you know, the fire pits, the soils, uh, the palynology, what kind of plants were growing, uh, what kind of, of faunal remains or animal pieces they left on the site. You have to go back and really reconstruct the culture from from start to, to finish. Hmm. And, and again, we're talking with uh, Michael Gear. He and his uh, wife Kathleen Gear uh, write uh, books about North America's prehistory. I, I gather you have quite a following, and I've looked on um, online the different interviews with you about uh, places you go and people you see. I mean, uh, there are folks who read your novels and, you know, it's, it's something like that they collect almost or they, they seek them out. Oh yeah, Bob, we've got close to 17 million copies in print worldwide. We've been translated into 29 languages. Uh, you know, we make the times list every so often, which is, is always reassuring. But what we have done with this series, and currently in the, the People series alone, we have uh, we're contracted for the 29th novel, which will be the, at the end of the, the Cahokia books, the Cahokia story. And for people who don't know, Cahokia in uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th century was one of the largest cities in the world. Underneath where St. Louis is today, as well as on the eastern bank of the Mississippi River in, in Illinois, uh, currently today, the, the biggest mound in North America is there at, at Monk's Mound at the Cahokia State Historic Site. But that was only one of 140 different mounds that were in that area. And you have to think of Cahokia like a metroplex. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it's under where modern St. Louis is. Uh, part of it's at the East St. Louis site. Part of it's at, at what they call Central Cahokia. Uh, some of it's to the north, some of it's to the south. There's huge bands of settlements all up along the, the top of the ridge. Um, one of the major Cahokian archaeologists, we got him a little bit liquored up one night, and he said, you know, I have <laughs> to tell you, I can't say this yeah, out loud or publish it, but he says, I suspect there were probably 200,000 people living in the American bottoms. Because every place wow. that we put a shovel in the ground anymore, we're turning up city. And huh. Cahokia is to North America as Rome was to Europe. Wow. But um, yeah. did they leave any kind of written record or, or no? Well, this is one of those things that, that gets kind of amorphous. Because one of the, the problems that you have in the eastern United States and the woodlands is that the, the soils there are very acidic, and these people mm -hmm. built in earth, timber, and thatch. Now, like in the southwest where we're, we're writing about the Anasazi and, and the, the Fremont cultures, 
mean, you go to Chaco Canyon and look at Pueblo Benito. I mean, this is a, a stone building five stories tall. The problem with Cahokia is that the temple that was built on top of Monk's Mound was probably another five-story tall building, but they built it out of logs. So mm. when it fell down, it just decomposed in that, that kind of an atmosphere. And so that caused us, as, as a, just an, an artifact of preservation, to look at these eastern, what we call Mississippian sites, as you know, all you see left is, is the mound of dirt. And that's kind of like if, if you, you know, bladed off New York City and all you had mm-hmm. left were the basements, you'd have a, mm-hmm. a really different, you know, that's, that's how you would interpret it in the past. You, you can't get that grandeur until you actually, you know, get into the archaeology and, and start exposing the, the uniqueness of the re- religion and the cosmology. And my God, these people are trading everywhere and, and they're a... a imperial culture who's going and building all of these settlements up and down the, the Tennessee River and the Ohio and, and trading down to the Gulf of Mexico and up into Canada. It's, it's just a huge complex. And since we've been talking about Cahokia, that's in the area of where St. Louis is today? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you look at the, the early maps of the city of St. Louis, it's all a huge mound structure, and all of that, including the, the giant ridge mound, well, they, they tore down the giant ridge mound in the 1870s and hauled it all off to use it for uh, base for railroads. And when did the Cahokia uh, cities flourish? Well, it's, Cahokia kind of gets started as, as a series of small, what we call uh, late woodland villages, in about the 900s. And then, Bob, something incredible happens at 1050. Uh, they come in, they, they bring in a bunch of engineers from um, the Toltec Mound site in Arkansas. And they completely resurvey the area. They grade it and survey it uh, about an eight square mile area and plot it all out, and then they start building the mounds. And that central area of Cahokia, where the Great Plaza is and Monk's Mound, is pretty much built over a 30-year period. And then a, a miraculous thing happens that shows up rarely in the archaeological record. We have people coming in from six of the surrounding states, states where they're, they're picking up entire villages and moving them in and adopting this Cahokian lifestyle. And we think it's a religious movement. Hmm. Wow. Why did they, what was the mound for? Well, the mound is a lot of things. It's, it's the foundation. It's a representation of Mother Earth reaching up to Father Sky. It's uh, the support for, for the buildings. It's an uh, interment for, for the dead. So it kind of acts as, as a doorway to the underworld. And these people divided their cosmos into the sky world, the middle world, and then the underworld, the, the, the water world underneath. And okay. it acts as that bridge between them. And any of your readers who are interested can uh, pick up People of the Morning Star, which is the, the first of the Hokia book series. And... 
we even included the bibliography at the back of, of all of our books so that, that people can go to the actual archaeological information and read about it. Michael Gear and Kathleen O'Neill Gear are best-selling authors and archaeologists who have written over 60 books about the prehistory of North America. Their latest book is called People of the Canyons, published by Forge, a Macmillan imprint. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.